to Water Cooler Live, uh, coming to you from Sydney. And um, we've got a terrific, terrific uh, Water Cooler Live for you today. We've got uh, three terrific guests. Uh, later on, we'll be talking to Senator Jim Molan, uh, somebody who's been speaking for a long time about uh, the issues around China, around fuel security, and other issues which have really come to the fore with this COVID-19 uh, crisis. Uh, we've also, um, we've also been talking to Mitch Hook. Mitch Hook, uh, the former head of the Minerals Council, uh, famous, of course, for fighting off Rudd's uh, mining tax. And Mitch is on our board, so it was very easy to persuade him to come. But Mitch is, will be talking about uh, mining in the face of the economic challenges we, we're going to have. Also about agriculture and a few other surprising things about Mitch you probably didn't know. Mitch will be joining us later on. But first... Uh, to my former colleague from The Australian, uh, Judith Sloan. Uh, Judith is joining us from Melbourne. Uh, Judith, as you know, is uh, a columnist with The Australian, uh, one of the most, uh, I think, authoritative uh, economists around, if I may call you that, Judith. Judith, welcome. How are you? Very well, thanks, Nick. So what do you make of this? I know you've been writing a lot about uh, the need to be very, uh, how shall I put it, very, we, we need to take this medical crisis very seriously as a medical crisis, first of all, right? Um, look, I think that's right. So, okay, I think the way to think about this is that there's obviously a health aspect, which is probably the primary consideration. There's an economic uh, aspect and then actually there's a financial uh, aspect which is slightly different from the economic one so we see the volatility in the share market and commodity prices and the like but um, the way I see it is this is that there obviously are economic costs to the restriction so there's an economic cost of actions um, and and they hurt they hurt and they hurt particular people and particular businesses but there's also a big economic cost of not taking action or not taking the right action. So at the end of the day, it's a judgment call as to whether the, the cost-benefit ratio is um, smaller or bigger in those two cases. Now, the way I would assess it is that as long as the restrictions are, you know, evidence-based, then it's probably less economically damaging to impose these restrictions than it would have been to allow the virus to get out of hand. So that's what I call the cost of inaction. Now, you know, the, the economics profession, there's a sort of minor civil war going on, by the way. I try and keep out of it. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, so uh, I... Uh, let me just sum up by saying this. I think Australia has done very well on the health front. It has come at a high economic co cost. And so the issue now is how do we lift those restrictions? What are the sequencing to the lifting of those restrictions? One would hope it's evidence-based. Well, it should be evidence-based and then to work through how the economy can improve uh, as those restrictions are lifted. Nick, I can't hear you. I think it pays to go back to the, uh, to the, to the public policy challenge here. We, we've always got to be clear, what are we trying to do? Now, we're, we're not trying to make everybody live forever. Governments can't do that, right? Uh, but the public policy challenge, I think, and it was well articulated at the beginning, was we've got to avoid our health services, particularly our acute hospital beds, getting swamped and our, our health system becoming uh, pandemonium. That was the aim. And we'd seen this happen in Italy. We've seen it happen in Spain. We had to stop that. Now, it's, we, have, we, have, we have done brilliantly at that, haven't we? We've got, I think, now about 7,000 acute beds because they've upped the number. And uh, at the last I looked, I think there were 49 COVID patients. There might even be fewer now. So we've done very well at that. So In ICU, yes. Yeah, yeah in, in ICU, yes. So how, how do we now, is now the time to start opening up the economy? And if so, how do we do it? Um, yes, it is. Um, but Australia is a big country. So in many ways, I think, the Federation has worked well in these, you know, I think the National Cabinet 
was a good idea. So it can establish a framework and some principles, but there's no reason that what happens in Western Australia need happen in Victoria and the like. So as long as we're following the same principles, then I think um, we should see, I mean, I, as I understand it, the schools will go back physically in Western Australia and South Australia, for example. And if you look at their number of cases, that's justified. It will be slower in Victoria and New South Wales and, and, and it seems, Queensland. Um, my guess is that the last thing that will be lifted will be the international travel restrictions. So I don't think we can see that resuming any time soon and probably large crowds also. But I think we should see some um, easing up of the restrictions, which quite rightly annoy a lot of people and I think have been slightly arbitrarily implemented from time to time. Mistakes were always going to be made. But my assessment of the Morrison government is that, and I've, you've probably heard the same thing, Nick, that he, he doesn't listen to economists when it comes to public health and he doesn't listen to doctors when it comes to business and economics. And I think he's done a good job in sort of sorting those two things out. This is, this is a, what we call a wicked policy challenge, yes. isn't it? I yes, mean, a wicked yes. policy challenge is one where you've got many variables, you've got conflicting aims, in this case, between the economy and public health, and no end point, no clear end point. It must be very hard for, for people to work this out, you know, for the Prime Minister and the Cabinet to get work through it, but for an economist too. I mean, you, you have to kind of put the normal rules aside and, and take other things into consideration, don't you? Well, absolutely, um, in, in the sense that uh, would I ever have supported the government introducing a program that was going to cost $130 billion? Uh, no. Um, but the way to see this is that they are imposing these costs on businesses and the economy, and it's through no fault of the players that this damage is uh, occurring. So effectively, the government becomes the spender of last resort. Um, so I, I, have they got all the details absolutely right? No. Is there some moral hazard in some of the things they've introduced? I think so. Um, is there what we call deadweight loss? Yes, you know, there are inefficiencies. But on balance, you'd have to think they've done a good job um, in trying to offset the economic damage and also, I think, by doing that, um, enlisting a degree of public support for the restrictions. Mm. Let's go back, um, ten, I guess it's 10 years, more than 10 years now, frightening, when, when I was um, editing the Weekend Australian and, and running the editorial pages and, and you were uh, chief economist there or a very significant figure. And, of course, all of us, you, you me, everybody on the paper, were, were very critical of uh, the Rudd government's second stimulus. You know, we felt that this was too much, unnecessary. Uh, they could have done stuff with interest rates. And as we now know, you know, China was was uh, injecting money into its economy and that, that helped see us through. So what's the difference between what Rudd did then, which was, you know, a lot of money, and, and what, what uh, the Morrison government's doing now, which is probably three times the amount? Why, why would you support what the Morrison government is doing now when we were against what Rudd did? Well, in the first instance, I mean, and I think it was indeed Glenn Stevens, who was the governor of the Reserve Bank, kept on reminding us this was actually the North Atlantic um, financial crisis, not the global financial crisis. Um, our banking system, our financial uh, services sector basically held up. I mean, it wasn't as if there weren't some effects, but by and large, we weren't faced with the sort of financial instability and collapse, which was the case in a number of European countries, the UK and the US. So um, my point there was that, of course, the government wasn't seeking to close down businesses. You know, there was a tremendous scope for some resilience. And, of course, what also happened was that the Chinese decided to get in in a very big way by stimulating their economy and that had very significant spillover benefits for Australia. So the thing is we just don't, the parallels then uh, are very scant when it comes to this current situation because effectively the government by fiat is just simply closing down 
large parts of the economy. So you think right through the performing arts, through sport, through hospitality, through tourism. So businesses are not allowed to operate. So it really is a very different situation. And I think the government has made exactly the right choice to step in and provide support where it's needed. Where do you think this goes now? I mean, what, what, how have you, and we, none of us have got a crystal ball, of course, but how bad is the recession going to be, assuming there is a recession? Uh, when will we come out of it? Will it be long? Will it be deep? What's your assessment? Well, it'll be interesting to hear what Mitch has to say. I mean, not everyone is a loser here. So the mining industry, the agricultural industry, or not every bit of it, but um, often, you know, particularly as the, the drought has effectively broken, parts of manufacturing. So there are, and, you know, there are so, sort of funny little winners, but the net effect is quite bad because, let's face it, Australia was, first of all, a very service sector-oriented economy, so it tends to be hit. Um, and we were very reliant on international movement of people. So I'm thinking here about tourism. Uh, you know, we were getting over a million short-term visitors every month. And, of course, international students. Um, so the future of that whole uh, economic enterprise, uh, some people would say it shouldn't have been an economic enterprise, <laughs> that's now under a serious cloud. So, I, you know, I think it's bad. Um, the only light at the end of the tunnel is that having done so well on the public health front, we can be in a position where we can start to lift those restrictions and just hope that enough businesses have been able to hold on to, um, you know, rejuvenate themselves and get on with the game. So, but, you know, I think the reality is it's going to be a very tough year economically. Just finally, um, I think a lot of us are, are thinking that now may be the time for some of the reform we've been putting off for a long time. I mean, IR springs to mind for me. What would your top? What was top of your shopping list if the government used this opportunity, as I, I hope it will, to do some of the really fundamental reforms we need in this country? I'm sure that's right, but I mean, I think you should expect an incredible political Barney with these things. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a column to think all of the stuff that we were getting so obsessed about, I'm, what were we thinking, you know? So, you know, it's now clear that there's way too much regulatory burden on businesses, that uh, big businesses had lost the plot. Our energy policy was was terrible. The industrial relations system with the awards and the restrictions on enterprise bargaining, terrible stuff. But, I mean, I'm a little bit circumspect in the sense that I think that's where the Labor Party, you know, ceases to be cooperative and there'll be a big, big bun fight. So, I mean, strength to the arm of the government, but they need to, I think, start to build the... I think Morrison set it out very nicely by saying that he sees the future as being based on the centrality of business rather than government but it, I think, is going to be quite choppy times in policy terms. Yeah, there's this, this moment that seems like a cooperative truce between government and, and the unions, but I, I suspect it's not going to last. What do you think? It's definitely not going to last. Um, so, you know, and I kind of become a bit frustrated in the sense that, you know, there's the governor of the Reserve Bank kind of saying all, all the, the sort of right things, although not being particularly specific, um, but, you know, there has to be sort of more follow-through. We, And, I mean, maybe it's up to people like the Menzies Research Centre and me and, and your other guests and your other guests at other times to start to build up the case for what will be the most important policy agenda items and prosecute the case. So we have to go back to thinking about what happened in the Hawke and um, Keating years and then John Howard and Costello you have you, you just have to make the case day and night, right? It's not overnight. And yeah. so that I think, and, and that's why, you know, Menzies is, you're going to be very busy, I think, in the next few years, to tell you the truth, <laughs> because you have to make the case for these things yeah. and you have to bring the public along. 
Yeah, well, I think that's right. And we'll, look, we're up for it. We're up for it, Judith. It's good. Uh, good. Uh, uh, IR is is a big one. I, I think when you know, you know, people are talking about bringing back manufacturing. Uh, you know, there are key manufacturing sectors we think for our own national security we should have on board here. Pharmaceuticals being the obvious one. I mean, what I'd like to say to the government is, if you're going to be encouraging uh, uh, industry to come back and start you know, re- reassuring, if you like, making things here again. What you should do is fix the things that send them offshore in the first place. I couldn't agree with you more. So that's right. So um, those things didn't happen just by chance. So what were the key factors that drove these things offshore? And um, I mean, I know from personal experience of some people who actually it now turns out were right. They left some manufacturing here onshore even though, you know, it's very expensive to undertake a lot of manufacturing in Australia for strategic reasons. But if we have to go back to the core reason why manufacturing was basically being decimated in this country and fix those. Because, yes, I mean, there'll be a few subsidies and strategic industry policy. I mean, it makes me shudder a bit. Um, If you don't actually fix the reasons why they fled in the first place. I think that will actually be quite short term. Yeah, and, and the, the, you mentioned higher education. I can't help but go there. I mean, you, you're attached mm-hmm. to Melbourne University, mm-hmm. uh, as is the Mentis Research Centre, as it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we see what's been happening in that sector. Um, you know, vast expansion uh, driven by basically huge numbers of students from here and abroad coming. And it always felt to me like that was going to come to an end at some point. Do you think now is the point at which we've got to reassess the higher education model and and uh, uh, and is it going to be easy? <laughs> it's going to be extremely hard. Um, so, uh, I mean, I always thought there was an element of a, the, a house of cards, not this one. I mean, I always wondered that whether one day the you know the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party would wake up and say no more no more Chinese students, right? I always thought that was a risk factor. So, um, but I think the universities became greedy, really. You know, so some of those GO8, including Melbourne, I mean, the percentage of commencing students who were international students was creeping up to half, half. You know, it was just way too high. They've also engaged in a, a ridiculously opulent building program and it now appears that maybe we didn't need those buildings after all, you know. So I think what's going to happen is that the universities are going to shrink, but they could also improve. And, I, I, you know, actually I think they'll have plenty of domestic students because a lot of domestic students' immediate, um, their immediate prospects are not good. So I think a lot will continue their studies or commence studies. But uh, I think there, you just have to look at the figures um, I mean, just briefly, because I know you want to get going with your other panellists, but at the University of New South Wales, I mean, they're about to lose $300 million in a year out of a budget of $2 billion. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost unimaginable how an organisation can adjust to that. So um, I think it's a matter of watching this space. And, yes, I think, you know, a lot of people think, well, the universities had it coming. Mm. But I think we have to also move on from that reaction and think how can they how can we facilitate their restructuring to I think what is actually what the community wants from them. I mean, just briefly, I mean they're probably um kicking themselves that they knock back those Ramsey centres, by the way, but there we go. <laughs> Yeah. Look, thank you, Judy. Thanks for joining no, us. We always enjoy anytime. your column in the Australian. We'll we'll have you back, I'm sure. As we go ahead, look and and thank you to everybody who's who's uh, tuned in. I guess we use that expression. We don't tune in anymore. We click on. But uh, this has been a really interesting learning experience for us. We always felt that we needed to do more of this kind of stuff, uh, but there was never really the impetus amongst everything else we do. So now, obviously, it's now uh, top of our agenda uh, uh, to to, and it's been. You know, just incredible the way people have responded and adapted to this form of communication. And uh, we've uh, we've had to sort of make a few. I'll just do the click my shot a moment. You can see we've we've converted the office. There's no room for anything now. It's full of equipment, uh, and you've got to do this. I mean, we had a certain amount of equipment. Uh, you know, obviously, this is not the time to be spending lots spending lots of money. But we 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 think that we need to invest in some more equipment to 
to scale this up because it's been going so well and uh, we'll be doing more of it. Uh, and I should say that um, it, all this is for free. We don't charge for this. Uh, but if you if you want to support us, uh, you can become a subscriber. You can go to the Menzies Research Centre website, www.menziesrc.org. And for $10 a month, you can subscribe and that way you'll be supporting us, but supporting yourself because there's lots of bonuses, extra benefits that come with being a subscriber, uh, discount on on our books, for example. And what we'll be doing is uh, special green room sessions. So after these water cooler lives, what we're going to do is uh, invite some friends back to the green room, as it were, the virtual green room, and just enjoy a sort of post uh, water cooler live chat. So if, if you're not a subscriber and you want to be part of that, um, then, then that's an easy one to fix, isn't it? Look, um, thanks, thanks again for, for joining us. And, and now um, to a, 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 somebody who's become a very good friend of mine, and I, I dare say a mentor too, uh, is Mitch Hook, uh, who many of you would know from his period at the Minerals Council, but uh, had a, a long history before that in public policy and agriculture, as he'll be telling us. Uh, Mitch is joining us from uh, the uh, the Southern Highlands, where he he he, uh, he, he uh, abides. I think, Mitch, are you with us, Mitch? I am, Nick. Nice to be with you. Terrific. Let's start with pick up where Judith left off. Uh, there, there are, you know, not everything is is going badly in the economy, and and I think it's been reassuring to see the mining sector has been. Uh, powering ahead so far. Uh, you know, BHP have been putting on workers and all sorts of things. What's your assessment of where the mining uh, sector is going at the moment? Uh, relatively unscathed up until now. And it goes to the point, the question on uh, my notes uh, that you asked Judith about what's different between this government intervention and the Rudd government intervention. And it essentially goes to the nature of the economic impact of uh, this pandemic. Uh, and uh, it's on the supply side principally than more so than what we saw with the GFC and even the Asian financial crisis where the impact was on the demand side. So we basically got self-imposed capacity constraints. And so the impact in the first instance, uh, the primary impact anyway, or the, through the first phase, is on the supply side. And... For the miners, they were relatively unscathed through that period. Yes, there was market sentiment uh, in both the stock markets and the commodity prices, and they came off uh, quite quite severely in uh, in the case of the base metals. Uh, the bulks held up, even thermal coal, uh, relatively speaking. You'd think it would come off, but but metallurgical coal for steel making and iron ore held up uh, quite well, and uh, gold, of course, uh, being the safe haven, attractiveness versus the US dollar in particular, uh, it's taken off. Uh, it's up $1,700 US an ounce and uh, pundits see it moving to 2000 and some are even saying it'll get to 3000 uh, over the course of the next year. So I'm surprised silver hasn't followed gold in the same way as being a safe haven. It's a bit understated at the moment. So basically, in the first phase, if you like, up until the last few weeks, the mining sector maintained volume maintained its outputs, its export volumes were up, maintained that. But now it's basically getting what I call the lag effect, the second phase of this, if you can split it that way. The lag effect of those impacts on supply is now starting to roll in. Uh, and so we're seeing that impacting on demand, uh, particularly copper, particularly nickel, aluminium, base metals, uh, the demand for thermal coal will have more to do with what happens in China and other places in terms of their own domestic production. The steel-making materials, iron ore and met coal, they're kind of holding up. But, but it's, not, it's not across the board, uh, the impacts of all mineral commodities, but relative to other sectors, what I call population-dense uh, sectors of the economy, some of those that uh, Julius just referred to, uh, mining is is holding up as the bedrock. So the, the, to swing it all the way back to the question you asked Judith about the relativities between the two levels of government intervention, it's very hard to fix a supply problem with a fiscal stimulus and monetary policy. Uh, you've got to actually go through what are the capacity constraints. And, of course, they're government-induced. And, and Judah said beautifully, you know, they'll have to go through the sequence of easing restrictions and we'll see what of an impact that is having. But 
if you want to know, uh, uh, if you want to have a look at what, what the supply response was, wasn't enough, demand's caught up, taken over, just look at, look at oil. I mean, it, is ha- it has been hammered to the point where, where there's not enough storage uh, globally. They've, re- they've reduced production by 9 billion uh, barrels a day, 9 million barrels a day, and yet the demand's dropped off by 20. So they're basically looking for storage uh, for their products. So I guess the other points I'd make to you is, number one, watch the markets, the stock markets. They always precede economics uh, and the economy in terms of recovery. Uh, Secondly, have a look at what's happening in the stock markets at the moment because they are essentially pricing what they see over the near to medium term uh, and probably more, more than medium to longer term. And the underlying fundamentals for the mining industry are very good. Uh, and so if China does run a stimulus like they did last time, the trillion-dollar stimulus, you know, that was a lot, Australia is very well positioned to take advantage of that. Some Nearly a quarter of our exports go to China, uh, and they increased by 26% last year. Uh, and so you know, that, that, that's a big fill-up to the Australian economy. And just as we've been riding the sheep's back and we're riding the back of a dump truck, uh, this economy, uh, it, you're going to see the same kind of effects as we come out of this. The bedrocks of recovery will be in agriculture and mining. And even though they're only a small percentage of GDP, the fact that we have such an open and resilient economy, uh, you're going to see that washing through. And just as the miners went into this pandemic pretty well, pretty well positioned, strong balance sheet, strong cash flows, low gearing ratios, net debt to equity. Uh, they're all weathering that, those who are producing. The ones that have taken the big hit are the new projects. Um, mm. The incentive prices are, in, are way north of where markets are playing at the moment. And so you're going to see companies conserving cash, uh, basically either deferring or, or, or cancelling capex expenditures. And so you'll see a focus on cash preservation. You'll see a focus on reducing costs at the current copper price. There'll be a fair few companies underwater there. So you're going to see some adjustments uh, as demand uh, impacts, uh, but I'm far more optimistic on the uh, medium to longer term, given that the fundamentals were strong going into this. Yeah, and I, look, that's right. And, and, and in part, thanks to what you did, the Minerals Council, if I can just pat you on the back for a minute. I mean, you managed to... to- fight off that mining tax. I mean, th- there was a feeling, it seemed to me, amongst Labor that they, you know, the mining mining was just a honeypot that they could just dip into every, continually. And But, I mean, you were right, I think, to insist that we had to remain competitive. You know, there are other people who could mine minerals and sell them to. That, that was important, right? Oh, massively so. Uh, to, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I'm, you, know, you get so much bucketing in this business, I'm quite happy to take a pat on the back. But... To be honest, it was a bit like shooting ducks in a gallery. Uh, it was such poor policy. And the raison d'etre for it was that, well, gosh, you know, the mining, the resources are in the ground, therefore they're immobile, therefore uh, they're, you know, they're, uh, the mobility of resources, in inverted commas, in economic terms, uh, as, a sense, as sensitive to tax rates is, is pretty low. Um, and so the, the, this, was a, this was a narrative coming out of Treasury and the government. And yet, of course, it's only dirt while it's in the ground. It's what you apply to the natural endowment in terms of uh, your entrepreneurial skills. And so when they introduced the, the so-called resources super profits tax, it meant that there was going to be a 58 cents hit to anything you earned over putting your money in, in the long-term bond rate. Because mm. they regarded the long-term bond rate as the risk return, or the, the risk, the free risk return on capital, and therefore anything above that could be hammered. So we we were we were basically being used as not only a milch cow, uh, but but on a supposition that there would be no impact or or, or deleterious effects to investment. Well, of course, of course, quite quite the opposite was the case. So it's probably one of the worst bits of public policy I've seen. It wasn't about tax reform; it was a tax grab. Mm. Look, one of the things you and I at the Mendes Research Centre have been uh, trying to fix for a long time is energy prices. I mean, we have some of the highest energy prices in the world, and it's absurd, as we all know, because we've got tonnes of coal, we've got uranium, we've got gas. I mean, we should have the cheapest prices. Uh, it, it was an argument that was, you know, I think we made a lot of headway last year. We we, we managed to argue against the Labor Labor opposition's proposed 
45% uh, emissions reduction and, and the cost that that would have incurred. Thank goodness we did. But look, I mean, it's going to be more important now, right? I mean, coming out of this, this presumed recession, uh, we want, when we're talking about getting manufacturing back on shore, we've got to get energy prices down. And the key to that's got to be gas, hasn't it, Mitch? Well, yeah. My my career is uh, is littered with uh, historics of not wanting to pick commodity winners or not wanting to pick company winners. Uh, my view is, and I know it sounds trite, but yeah, I, I was always product neutral and technology neutral and what have you. Uh, but but you're down, you're, you're dead right. Uh, if that is, if that if we're going to have energy intensive industries in particular back on shore, then we have to be competitive on our basic inputs. Uh, a lot of those price the hits I was talking about before, they are US denominated commodity prices. And a lot of the impact of that has been offset by an exchange rate that has been a critical shock absorber to the economy. It is on the way up. It's basically why through the last boom, we didn't overheat and, and it all ended in tears like it did back in the 70s when we were rigid and inflexible and had a fixed exchange rate. So if the exchange rate's flexible, uh, it moves. And what we're seeing now is the exchange rate has come off a fair bit relative to the US dollar. And that, of course, has cushioned a lot of the US dollar decreases in commodity prices, throw into that basket uh, the impact of lower oil prices around the world. And, and there's a bit of a fill-up going on for, for uh, export or in, export competing and import competing industries, particularly in the resources sector. Back to your energy policy, though, uh, what, what's got to What's got to happen in that space is that a lot of the artificial interventions have got to be removed. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the moratoriums on, on gas exploration that existed in one territory in a state, they've been lifted up north and they've been partially lifted down south. But you know, fancy changing the constitution to outlaw a form of mining that is now so prevalent and so obvious throughout the United States, it's been effective in, uh, in essentially rendering them energy independent. Not only that, Mitch, but I mean, I think I think it's important to point out that what's happened in the United States has actually brought down their emissions because gas is massive coal on price, and of course, it's about half the emissions. Well, that's true to a point, uh, and again, I'm not going to fall into the trap of being pigeonholed as as a supporter of one uh, energy product over another. Uh, I mean, I'd love to be seeing uranium and hydrogen, and uh, uh, you know, even thorium. Uh, on the agenda too as sources of of energy. But if you were to take coal into where a lot of the new coal-fired power stations around the world are being built, and bear in mind that 42 43% of the world's primary energy comes from uh, from coal, uh, and coal-fired power around the world has doubled since the year 2000. We've now got 2,000 gigawatts. China's heading for 1,300 gigawatts as a cap. And they're 1,100 now. To put that in perspective, Australia has a 51 gigawatt grid of which about 25 gigawatts is coal. The point is that a lot of those new coal-fired power stations, uh, and the techos out there will love this, but they're running at what they call the ultra-supercritical 1,700 degrees integrated gasification combined cycle with a fuel cell, essentially top-notch efficiency, running at about you know, somewhere in the order of 55 to 59%, or about 55% thermal efficiency. Current, current stations are about 35. And the profile of emissions is around 550, 590 kilograms of CO2 per kilowatt hour. Now, to put that in perspective, that's getting very close to gas. Mm. And it's, mm. it's about half or slightly more than half, uh, sorry, slightly less than half on a really good black coal-fired power station and more than half what you get from brown coal. So my point out of all that download was to justify to our viewers that uh, I kind of know a little bit about this and I think gas is very much in the scope, particularly for remote areas as backup. Uh, I'm seeing a major transformation across the mining companies in remote operations to renewables and batteries. A lot of the lithium phosphate batteries coming out of China now are cheap and effective uh, in providing uh, power and uh, remote mining communities are looking at the economics of uh, actually being able to supply themselves uh, off-grid and with gas backup uh, and even diesel for that matter, but as baseload backup. So the economics there are working, but it's, it's... got a fair way to go in terms of being uh, a source of energy into the grid and the, like, the, the yeah. battery technology where it's at. 
It's, I should say, I mean, we, we all associate you as Mr. Mining really because of that, that career you had there, but you had a long career before that. You were, you're not a bad footballer, I'm told. I think that's some of your mentors, mentors behind us there, right? I don't know. Uh, Probably in my dreams, but uh, <laughs> I never really got a chance to go on with it. It was either was either uh, incur the uh, the wrath of my father uh, and uh, all the effort he put in having us uh, have an education, or go up to uh, the University of New England and do rural science, which I did. So you did, yeah, you did rural science. So you uh, and we've had discussions about this because of a project that we're working on now uh, on uh, regenerative agriculture, which is about uh, really finding cleverer ways to farm um, and get a return for farmers. Uh, maybe you could explain that concept. We've got to find a better word for it, by the way. But anyway, let's for now call it regenerative agriculture. What are we talking about? Yeah, well, the nomenclature of all of this is, uh, has had all sorts of uh, iterations, um, conservation farming, uh, soil conservation, erosion mitigation, mitigating against soil degradation, reduced tillage, conservation tillage, zero tillage. And as a uh, wool grower's son from the Western District of Victoria, I found myself, found myself uh, straight out of uni, smack in the middle of the Darling Downs. And uh, after about a year of trying to find out what I was actually doing, I ended up being one of the pioneers uh, of zero tillage farming up there. And that was essentially taking, for, for what that means, uh, you know, layman's language, is basically taking the plough out of the paddock. Uh, and if you want to know what does the most damage to our soils, uh, and I'll come back to pastoral industries in a minute, but the most damage to our soils uh, in terms of their organic matter content uh, is the cold steel. Uh, it's not so much the burning of the stubble, uh, that doesn't help, but but it's actually the mineralisation of the organic material. Now, organic carbon makes up 58 60% or something of organic matter. Uh, and to put it into perspective, uh, our, the soils worldwide have got something like three times the amount of uh, carbon in them than the atmosphere does. And uh, it's a massive reservoir. And so you only have to move the needle uh, slightly in terms of your soil organic carbon content and you've got yourself a worthwhile sink. Now, a lot of the climate change debate, uh, and, and I'm in the camp of the precautionary principle, that is an insurance policy, I want to give the planet the benefit of the doubt. And I think the best insurance policy is the one you don't have to use. Uh, and if that's the case, that'll be good. Uh, but the, the, the idea of finding solutions to to uh, reducing emissions is not just on the sources, not just on the output. It's also on the sinks, the, you know, what, what is actually going to fix it? And we talk about planting trees, but there's very little mention made about changing practices in agriculture. Now, reduced tillage and zero tillage farming is essentially being a, a fundamental transformation in the way farmers are stewards of their land. And it has improved farm productivity, water use efficiency, uh, cropping reliability, out of sight. Uh, the very few paddocks you now see when you drive through farming country that doesn't have stubble retained uh, and, and strip cropping and uh, integrated pest management and integrated agriculture. So the whole ecosystems practice. What you came to me about uh, was what's going on in the pastoral industries and more what what could they do in that space? And we spoke at length about how we might actually be able to set it up so that there can be carbon farming beyond just planting trees. Uh, or, mm. I don't mean just as in a, in a pejorative sense, I mean but transcending planting trees. And uh, the, the challenge there is actually how you measure it and how you measure it uh, on a repetitive basis so that you can actually start crediting financial gains. But the major gain for the farmer, the major incentive for the farmer is improved on-farm productivity mm. uh, and essentially a sustainable development platform yeah. to, for doing that. And that is uh, we all talk about intergenerational equity big supporter of that and that is we don't want to stuff it up for the future generations on account of what we did today and that goes to the heart of our land management um, mm. we actually haven't done that well in australia historically we've had cloven hoofed animals and acid soils and rising salinity and soil erosion and you know there was a time when, when i came into uh, into the professional agricultural side i was born and bred on the land but in the professional agricultural side uh, it was burn bash and bury uh, you know, plough the hell out of the country as much as you could. There were compaction pans, there was soil erosion, there was poor water use efficiency. Uh, if one litre of DDT was good, well, two litres was better. 
uh, you know, it was it was hammer-fisted stuff, uh, and and not because the farmers, uh, you know, weren't poor stewards of the land. It was just it was just an understanding of how yeah. the process works and how you could do it. And so there's been this reclamation and this rehabilitation going on for some time, uh, and the aid to comp. Uh, in terms of there being a win-win on climate and energy policy and agricultural productivity is how we might get the intersection between uh, soil carbon and farming work to a point where there's some financial incentives over and above what the farmer's going to reap themselves. I think that's the key to it, Mitch, and thank you for your, your, your time tonight and thank you for your time on the Mentors Research Centre Board. I'm very fortunate to have people of your calibre to, uh, to guide me and counsel me. Thank you, Mitch. Uh, we'll be hearing from you again soon. My pleasure. Um, thank you. Um, so this is Watercaller Live from the Mentors Research Centre. Um, uh, this is essentially our TV channel, I suppose. Uh, we haven't got a name for it yet. We were talking about Menzies TV, perhaps MTV, but then a few people in the office pointed out that had already been done. Uh, but uh, look, whatever it is, uh, I, we, we, we're so, uh, so glad it's working. That uh, The comments that are coming up are terrific. Um, holistic farming, uh, Wayne Brown suggested. Uh, we should call it this holistic farming, says Wayne Brown. Uh, hello for the Darling Downs, Justin McGovern writes. Uh, hi, hi, Justin. One of my favourite places in Australia, the Darling Downs. Most beautiful, lovely black soil. Uh, but look, um, let's move on and, and bring in our next guest. Our next guest, uh, you know, needs no introduction, I think, to most of us. Senator Jim Molan, very distinguished career in the army before going into politics. Uh, and uh, I think uh, one of the most uh, wisest and sanest voices up there on the hill. Jim, welcome. You're joining us from uh, somewhere south of Canberra, I think. Yeah, I, I am, uh, Nick, and thank you for your, your welcome. Uh, it was fascinating to listen to both Judith and Mitch. Uh, I live in Royala, which is about 20 kilometres south of Queanbeyan, and just off the Monero Highway. I say it's on the edge of the Monero. <laughs> and uh, it's a lovely place, uh, but the Darling Downs is a fantastic place. I spent, I spent uh, three years flying helicopters out of the Army Aviation Base in Oakey, uh, and I have always in my mind You'd come back from a trip of being away for a couple of weeks, flying solid, come back to Oakey, uh, up onto the Darling Downs as the sun was setting. It was just overwhelmingly beautiful. Isn't it? No, no, it's a terrific place. Um, you, you, Jim, um, we, we've got lots to talk to you about, of course. You've been um, talking a lot about the rise of China and the strategic implications for Australia uh, this has come to the fore now, of course, with the COVID-19 crisis. Tell me, do you see that we're, our relationship with China is, is changing in the light of all this? Nick, I think it's inevitable that it must change. How it changes now is going to be the big question. And both Mitch and Judith uh, addressed this. Uh, if we're going to recover ourselves from this, we can't kind of take a Versailles Treaty approach to China. Uh, there's a demand out there that we find uh, that China was the cause of everything, that it's been deceitful, non-transparent, and we're going to get them. Uh, people are even saying, let's take China to some kind of international court and take 6 or $7 billion off them. Well, you know, uh, that ain't going to work. And uh, I, I had five fascinating years of diplomacy as uh, an army attaché, then a defence attaché in our embassy in Jakarta in two separate postings. And I learned that the first rule of diplomacy is to keep your mouth closed. Uh, If we're going to do anything that is demanded by security, then we should do things uh, rather than uh, just telegraph abuse to begin with. But I think our relationship with the world has got to change, not just with China, and the, the reason it's got to change is that we find ourselves linked into across every bit of our society uh, a, a global supply chains which are untrustworthy. And uh, if this thing went on for much longer, it looks like we, we, we may come out of it in a set period of time and other countries are coming out, then we may not learn the lesson of this. 
so I, I think that as we redefine, we, we certainly can't go back to some kind of southern hemisphere, northern Korea approach where we trade with no one, we talk with no one, we produce absolutely everything. And some people call that self-sufficiency. Uh, 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 I, I, I say to myself, what we must strive to achieve now is a degree of self-reliance in those areas that are crucial to us. And everything else, every, absolutely everything else, we must uh, trade with the world. We must accept globalisation in every other area. And uh, we've spoken about the centrality of business. The PM has said that business will remain central to what we do, and so, sh so it should. Uh, it, we, we found that globalisation has made us prosperous, but there's no way in the world is the market going to deliver any level of security to us. There might be one or two countries, such as the US and maybe another country, where uh, the free market, because they are so enormous and powerful and such a variety of what they produce, they gain their security out of the diversity of what they do. We're not going to do that. So, so I think the challenge for the government coming out of this, and we're on the road to recovery, the challenge for the government coming out of this is going to be how we approach all of the world and not just China. So I think that's where, where I find myself. And yeah. it was fascinating listening to the... Because tonight we will get, I hope, a little bit of the controversy between economics, industry, agriculture and security. Yeah, yeah. This is the thing, isn't it? You can never focus on just one area of policy. You know, it's like, uh, I think it's tempting for politicians always to go for the, you know, the noisiest bit, you know, to try and stop the dog barking. And But uh, <laughs> if you do, uh, you know, it, 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 you, 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 it won't, you won't, you may not see its teeth before it bites next time. I think that's, 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 that's the issue here. And uh, we had a conversation, I don't know if you recall, and it was before the COVID-19 crisis really became apparent. It was just shortly after the bushfires. And you said to me, look, you know, sure, we, we, we handle the bushfires well, but what if we had more than one major external threat at one time? And we have, essentially, right? And it's, it's, it taxes the government, doesn't it? It's a lot, a lot of work for a government to do with two crises. Well, it is. Uh, and... We've, we, we, if we'd had the, just, just imagine, if we'd had a, a, a war in the Middle East, we stopped our fuel supplies uh, or even lessened our fuel supplies, not stopped them, if we'd had the fires and the coronavirus at the same time. Now, people will say, well, the probability of that approach is zero, uh, and, and, and maybe it does, but uh, if in the middle of last year I'd said to people, uh, listen, we should start preparing for a virus which is going to bring the economy totally down and we're going to spend $130 billion to keep people, to pay people not to work, uh, th then people would have said, you're mad. Uh, but a, a mature country uh, will look at the, the scenarios that are possible in the future, make a decision as to the, as to the degree of likelihood and invest in preparation for them. And... Uh, I, I, I continually say to people that with my military background, of course I'm going to look at extreme scenarios. That's what I'm paid for. Uh, but the probability of a regional conflict, which if we think this is bad, hey, you've seen nothing yet until you see the, the, the financial cost of a war I spent uh, a, a year as Chief of Operations for the American Forces in Iraq and we were spending $50 billion a month over there. Now, let's not muck around and they'll, they'll be paying for that war forever. If we thought the fires were expensive and, and I thought we broke all the records as we handed out money after that, we handed it out slowly uh, and we're still handling it out, God bless them all down there on the south coast, uh, but... If, if we think that was big, we've just gone through, what is it, close to $400 billion if you look at some of the guarantees that we've given out as well. And uh, the, the cost of conflict is in the trillions, even a little war like the Iraq war. And every day we see uh, the, 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 the two big nations at the moment that are of importance to us, which is America and China, uh, practising killing each other. 
They practice war and how to destroy and defeat each other to the maximum possible cost every day. And that's not looking at what Russia is preparing to do, what Iran is preparing to do, and, of course, North Korea has been in the headlines today. Uh, we forget about Islamic uh, uh, extremism, and that hasn't run its course. And the only, point I, the only reason I talk about this, Nick, is because we're in the middle of a crisis now. We've, we've gone through fires. We're in COVID at the moment. Uh, government, I think, has come closest uh, in the last couple of months to being a wartime mobilising mm. uh, uh, government. And I think, uh, as I think uh, Judith or Mitch mentioned, the, the, the extraordinary achievement of, of the National Cabinet, uh, when I think back to the history of World War II, the extraordinary achievement of the National Cabinet to, to actually get some of the states, some of the time going in roughly the same direction, <laughs> uh, I, I hope we keep it going for a long time. Yeah, um, and look, I, I think this is the point that's missed on this. You know, it, it, watching the process from the outside, you know, it's been quite apparent that the government is having to make big decisions about large amounts of money, about big decisions about lockdown or not lockdown, with, uh, you know, limited information. I mean, they didn't, at the start of this, they didn't really have a clear picture of what this virus was or how it spread. I mean, more of that's come in, the information has gradually come in from overseas, just given us a picture. But I really got an impression, Jim, and you'd know this, of, of what the expression, the fog of war. You know, you're making calls uh, when you're on very imperfect information. You'd be familiar from that from your time in the military. Uh, absolutely, and uh, it's it's quite strange because there because we still hear it today when when uh, nations are in the situation where they're considering uh, entering a conflict, people demand an exit strategy. Uh, and if the aim of going to war is to have a good exit strategy, then I suspect, I suggest you cut out the middleman and don't go. <laughs> uh, and the act, it's the act of going to war, which then changes every aspect of that conflict. If, if there were other nations involved and another nation came in, that would change it. So if people think that we have the ability to describe in any level of detail an exit strategy, we might, we, we, we might, hope that we can achieve certain objectives. And I think that's what the government is going through. We hear a lot of commentary at the moment demanding an exit strategy from the government. You know, uh, we, we want to know how, the journalists want to know how long this is going to go on for. Well, fundamentally, no one knows. This is the first time we've been through COVID. And this government, I think, is doing it fabulously. When I look at the ministers uh, and I say to myself, uh, if we weren't doing this, it had taken 10 years to gain this level of knowledge of their own departments and the options which are available, the policy options which are available to them. It would take you 100 years as a kind of a, a non-COVID minister to get that, whereas we've got this now. This is going to be a powerful government going into the future. Can you imagine Winston Churchill say around October 1939, you know, <laughs> having to give a one-hour press conference and they're saying, what's your exit strategy, <laughs> Mr Churchill? What's your... <laughs> you just don't know, do you? You, do, you know, you're in that situation, you, you, you can't say. It would be, be dishonest to say you thought it was going to be over by Christmas. Well, well that, that's, that's right. And, and uh, it, it, when you look at the strategy that you started with in 1939, when only part of the world was involved in that conflict... Uh, Russia became involved, then America became involved. And by the time they got to 44 and, and D-Day, uh, they were able only then to give a directive to Eisenhower which said, uh, capture Berlin. Now, that's fabulous. That would in all probability have ended the war, but even that was overtaken by events. So I, I do understand the point you make about the fog of war and... Uh, we, 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 do, we do war quite frequently in this country, but we do little war with very small forces and we're not strategy setters. Unlike Mitch, who can go out to a business and set a strategy and achieve it, we as a nation, when we go into conflict, invariably we take the strategy. We're strategy takers. So we take the American strategy or the British strategy. But the point that I make so often now, uh, Nick, is that, that has now changed. We've had 75 years where we haven't had to be good at strategy because 
uh, even if we if we look at our fuel reserves, uh, we've always known for the last 75 years that if anyone, such as a Gulf state, closes the Gulf down where we get the vast majority of our fuel, then we know the Americans will open it up within a couple of weeks. So why would you store more fuel? In Australia, at great expense, have to then manage the turnover of that fuel. But now that's all changed. In those days, in 1989, and we've had this discussion, you and I, in those days in 1989, at the end of the Cold War, the American Navy was 600 ships strong. It's now less than 300 ships and they're working very hard to get back to 355 ships, which they will not get back to for about 20 years. So uh, to expect perfection in decision-making, uh, I, I, you know, and I think that the Prime Minister has been brilliant in answering question after question after question. His level of patience uh, exceeds mine by a factor of about a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. I don't know how he puts up with it. Those people on the seven thirty report and goodness knows what. Uh, he, he, yeah, he, just just before we wrap up, Jim, uh, we will go back to the bushfires because you were it was your neck of the woods. You you spent most of the summer, I think, on the road, um, uh, going round, um, uh, checking on communities, making sure they had everything they want. Of course, this is out of our off the radar now uh, because we've got other crises to deal with. But how are things going in the recovery phase? Well, the recovery is still going on and the recovery organisation is still working. Uh, the the houses are being cleared. Uh, people like John Barillaro and Andrew Constance and others who live amongst uh, the, the areas that were so badly hit uh, are still making sure it goes on. Uh, the big companies that have been contracted to do the cleaning are doing the cleaning. I heard today, I got an email from uh, a, a mate down in Batlow which said the town is now, they're starting to clean up the town of Batlow. Uh, these things are happening but they never happen as fast as people would like them to happen. Uh, and uh, it's, it, it is very, very sad that people who, went, who lost their income over Christmas who were... Who were uh, who were gritted their teeth and said, "Okay, we'll, we'll take the hit here. We'll just get to Easter and we'll we'll make them make some money in Easter to get us through the rest of the year, where we don't make any money in the tourist industry." Well, they're smashed, absolutely smashed. And you know, we've we've flogged. I spent. I think I spent. I, I my wife and I launched down to the south coast from where we live on the Monero uh, on Christmas Eve because. Uh, you know, there have been fires before that in our local area, which is really the, the electorates of Gilmore and Eden Monero, say, from from uh, 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 Wollongong all the way down to Eden and back across to Tumut Tumbarumba area, uh, an enormous area. They'd been smashed and uh, I, I generously knocked all my staff off. So I, 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 we launched down there and we spent in total 21 days. Uh, I got some staff after a while and the Prime Minister gave me two military people uh, after, after a little while. And we just went from place to place to place and we reported back to the PM each night. Uh, we made suggestions. We tested things with the, the, the leadership. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a very good, it's a very good model which... Which I, I gave, I gave uh, uh, my expertise lies in the area of crisis management. We call it operations, but it's crisis management, and that's what I did in Iraq uh, in, a, in a very, a, a very uh, extreme period of time. I was asked to give evidence, Nick, on this to the two thousand and nine Royal Commission on the Victorian fires, and I and I did that, and and I, I realised that what we take for granted of a a, a leader who suddenly finds that they don't know what's going on for very good reason, is not to not do anything. It is to go forward and find out what's going on. And that's why we're so, that's why we're so popular users of helicopters because, you know, uh, if, if you don't know what's going on, get off your backside and get out there. <laughs> Look, um, yeah, no, I, we, we want politicians to get out more. Uh, not at the moment. Of course, we're all being socially distant and so forth. But, look, um, thank you, Jim, for your, your, your wisdom and your common sense and for everything you're doing in Parliament. And, look, we'd love to get the opportunity to talk to you again on, uh, on Watercooler Live. Thank you. Love to, Nick. Thank you. Uh, well, that's about it. Except to say, once again, look, this content is free. Um, uh, 
we want as many people to watch it as possible. But if you become a subscriber, you can join the uh, green room sessions and other things we'll be doing to subscribers if you want to get more involved. Uh, you can subscribe by going to the Menzies Research Centre website, www.menziesrc.org, and it just starts at $10 a month. Uh, you'll be doing yourselves a favour and you'll be doing us a favour. So uh, please consider that. And thank you, uh, everybody who's written in. I'll just read a few few of the comments out before I go. Um, brilliant session. That's just sort of comment I like. <laughs> Thanks for that, Barry. Um, very, as usual, some... What's going on here? <laughs> That's the alarm going off, telling us we got to the end of this. Um, a lot of comments there about China, about waking up to China um, and, and, and so forth. Uh, some very interesting thoughts on energy. Uh, people backing Mitch's call for nuclear energy as well as everything else. Um, and, um, uh, you know, generally, I think... Well, if only I could spend more time on this, but look... Uh, thank you for doing that. We're going to get better at this as we go along. We're going to we're going to get better and better. And your suggestions are always very welcome. Who would you like us to invite on? We can do that. Uh, I will tell you that next week, we uh, this next Wednesday, we will be talking to Bjorn Longborg. Uh, Bjorn Longborg, many of you will know uh, from his columns in the Australian, but he also runs a, a very very um, useful organization called the Copenhagen Consensus, where they look at how best we can invest our money if we want to achieve the things we want to achieve. And he's been, of course, a uh, very, very uh, interesting contributor on, on, on climate change. I look forward to talking to him about the COVID-19 virus and other things. So that's next Wednesday night, 7.30. Uh, our special guest or one of our special guests will be Bjorn Lomborg. Um, and uh, we've just got to go on from strength to strength. So thank you very much for, for your time this evening, and uh, we look forward to welcoming you again soon to Waterpool Alive.